please remain standing for the gospel, which is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. This is the Sunday on which the church celebrates the transfiguration of the Lord. So it seemed good that we should take a break from the rigor of Ephesians for a week. Though I must warn you in advance, by the time we're finished, you may wish we stuck with Ephesians. This, this text from Matthew 17, while its purpose is simple and clear, unearthing that purpose requires some digging. So we're going to look at this marvelous account of the Lord's transfiguration from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Now this scene has very important links with what has just preceded it in Matthew 16, the famous scene at Caesarea Philippi. There, Peter makes his famous confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus charges them to tell no one that He's the Christ. After that, Jesus expressly says that He will be crucified on the third day and then be raised. And you'll remember Peter showing that he and the other disciples had not yet grasped the necessity of the cross. He responds with his famous protest. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus, of course, rebukes him. And in fact, calls him Satan. Says you're not setting your things on the mind of God, but you're setting your your mind on the things of man. And then Jesus turns to the disciples. He tells them to deny themselves. Take up their crosses and follow Him. And then just prior to our text, just before the transfiguration, at the end of chapter 16, Jesus turns to His disciples and says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man 
coming in his kingdom. And then about a week later, the event in our text occurs. And so I want to look at this event under four main headings. Four main headings. First, in verses 1 and 2, the transfiguration. And then in verses 3 and 4, Moses and Elijah. And then in verses 5 through 8, the cloud and the voice. And then finally in verse 9, what I'll call sealing and unsealing the vision. So we have the transfiguration itself, the event. We have this conversation with Moses and Elijah. We have a cloud and a voice. And then we have some instructions about sealing and unsealing what happens here. So first then, the transfiguration. In verse 1, Jesus takes three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. And the text makes it clear that this event takes place for the sake of these three disciples, not for Jesus' sake. And thus, this passage exists to instruct us, indeed to encourage us as disciples of Christ. This is not a piece of divine pyrotechnics for someone's amusement. This is a text for the edification of disciples. Repeatedly in the first few verses, it's they, by themselves. He appeared to them. He took them. And secondly, this reference to a high mountain with the cloud and the glory and the voice evokes the atmosphere of Moses' ascent up Mount Sinai, which is the reason Exodus 24 is one of the traditional, which was just read, is one of the traditional Old Testament readings for the transfiguration. On this high mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. The word used is our word for metamorphosis. He was transformed. And so what's happened here is all of this earthly dullness that we wander around in has been stripped away and the disciples get a glimpse of the full glory of Christ. The text says that his face shone like the sun and that his clothes became white as the light. Now I want to make a few sub-points here. Actually, four of them about this event, the transfiguration. First, there's even more echoes from Exodus and Moses here. And that's from Exodus 34 where Moses, we're told that Moses' face shone when he came down off that mountain. His face was irradiated. But it's important to see that Moses' glory faded. And Jesus is being presented here in this text as the greater Moses, the possessor of even greater glory. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that you and I, that we beholding, seeing, seeing the glory of the Lord are being transformed. The word there is actually transfigured, the same word in our text. Transfigured into His image from one degree of glory to another. Now this means that the transfiguration of Jesus is a preview 
of your own coming glorious burning body of light. This is your glory glimpsed in Christ and your destiny in advance. This, what happens to Jesus here, is what the glorification of the saints entails. When we talk about the coming glory, or we want to be glorified, or the glory of the kingdom, or that was glorious, or this was glorious, we are talking about this destiny, an embodied, transfigured, illumined existence. And this has already begun, Paul says, now in us. It's been birthed in us when we gaze upon Christ's glory with unveiled faces. Now, it's crucial to see this is not simply an unveiling of Jesus' deity, His intrinsic glory as the Son of God. This is a glimpse of the glory of the risen Christ. And since it is that, and since it's a picture of our destiny, a destiny we'll obtain at His second advent, this is a foretaste, not only not only of the risen Christ, but also, as we shall see, of the coming Lord. The transfiguration is a preview of Jesus' resurrection. It's Easter in advance, which is why it is placed in the church year right here today at the beginning of Lent. It's not only Easter in advance, though. It's the eschatological kingdom the glory to come in advance. It is a picture of both the risen and the coming Lord. And why this matters to us, we shall see in a few moments. So that's the transfiguration itself. The second main point I want to make is about Moses and Elijah. First, let's talk about this conversation they have. They appear to the three disciples talking to Jesus in verse 3. Now, Luke has an account of this event, and Luke tells us that what they were talking about was Jesus' exodus. It's translated departure in some English Bibles, but it's exodus, which should not surprise us. We've already seen a string of exodus, Moses' imagery. By exodus, Luke means they are talking about Jesus' coming death and resurrection, his death and resurrection, which affects our exodus from sin and death. So, this scene is fraught with the glory of the risen, the ascended, and the coming Christ. But the conversation between Moses and Elijah is about the sequence by which the kingdom comes. Death, suffering, then resurrection. Suffering, then glory. The cross, then the crown. That is, they were talking about what Jesus just told the disciples in chapter 16 and which they clearly didn't grasp. The second thing here is Moses and Elijah themselves. Why are they here? Well, they appear because they're two major figures of Old Testament messianic expectation. They're the two figures which anticipate the coming dawn of the messianic age. Right? You have uh, Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. 
And Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus tells us, is Elijah. Elijah is fulfilled in the appearance of John the Baptist. And of course, Moses is fulfilled in the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. These two figures confirm that the predicted, the long predicted, the prophesied messianic age of glory has now dawned. Notice also in this conversation, Peter's suggestion. In verse 4, Peter, his self-confidence apparently not damaged from being called Satan the week before. He's a resilient guy. He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. This is one of the greatest examples, I think, of innocent, well-meaning presumption in human history. The irradiated Christ is there, and he says, you know, it's good that I'm here. If you're ever privileged to have a vision such as this, I highly recommend not extolling the goodness of your own presence. Also, keep suggestions on how to improve the scene to yourself. But, but not Peter. He, he wants to become a one-man construction crew. And so he says, um, I will make three tents or three shelters. And just in case, just in case, the transcendently irradiated Jesus was befuddled by the number three, Peter spells it out for him real slow. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Perhaps the worst building committee suggestion ever uttered. Mark and Luke put it tactfully here. They say in their accounts, Peter did not know what he was saying. Peter surely means simply three structures or tabernacles, possibly to prolong the experience, right? This is a human temptation. Something grand and glorious has happened. Let's bottle it. Let's contain it. Let's replicate it. Let's control it. But it's about to be made abundantly clear that Jesus alone is the tabernacle of God among men. So that's the conversation. The third main point is the cloud and the voice. Now, if you're the head of the building committee and you get a suggestion like Peter's, I suggest that in Christian courtesy, you let him finish his sentence. God, however, he is the chair of his own committee. He provides no such courtesy here. He actually interrupts Peter. Apparently, the text indicates, before Peter had finished generating, you know, demonstrating to the Lord the mathematical genius of the three tabernacle plan. He doesn't actually get to the end of the sentence. Verse 5 says, and while he was still speaking. This bright, radiant cloud covers them. Indicating that Jesus is the ark the place where the glory of God dwells. You'll also recall that at his ascension, at his ascension, Jesus was received into a cloud. And we're told that he will come again on the clouds. 
So this whole complex of things, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, are being previewed here. The transfiguration is not about one thing. It's about Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and his appearance. And even as a voice came from that cloud on Sinai, so a voice comes from this cloud. We get words that are identical. Identical to the words uttered over Jesus at His baptism. This is My Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. There are two echoes, two allusions to the Old Testament that we should hear here. The first one is from Psalm 2 where the Father says to the Son, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. That's a reference to the glorified and exalted Christ who shall inherit the nations. And the second echoes from Isaiah 42, which speaks of my servant, my chosen one, in whom I am well pleased. That text refers to the suffering servant who makes atonement by giving his life. And so again, in this context, these baptismal words re-uttered over Jesus, they, they tell us that he must suffer first and then be raised into his glory. And there's something spoken here to the Lord which is not spoken to Him at His baptism. At the end of verse 5, this command, listen to Him. This is a, a reference to Deuteronomy 18. To this idea that a prophet greater than Moses would arise to whom the people should listen. When we see this Jesus, we are reminded that He is the final speech of God. Spoken in these last days. He's the speech which tells us the end is at hand. The end has appeared. And this voice from the cloud terrifies the disciples, just like the voice terrified Israel at Sinai. They fall on their faces. And we see something beautiful in the text. Jesus, dreadful as His glory is, in Him God speaks to us tenderly and in a human voice. In this Jesus, we nevertheless meet God unafraid. He comes up in verse 7, touches them and says, Get up. Do not be afraid. And they lift their eyes. They see Jesus alone. Normalcy's restored. The visitors are gone. And the Lord probably appears the way He did before the transfiguration. Now the reference to seeing Jesus only clearly intends to communicate His supremacy to Moses and Elijah. It is Him that we must hear. He is the Word of God. Moses and Elijah only bore the Word of God. And so this brings us to the final point, sealing and unsealing. Notice in verse 9, they're coming down the mountain and Jesus commands them to tell nobody what they've seen. Not even the other disciples. This is the, something like the fifth time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus tells people to keep His identity silent. And the reason for this is that the people, and this includes the disciples, 
expected a political messiah. They expected, as we often expect, glory without suffering. And Jesus is a master teacher. He's very careful to make sure that his teaching keeps pace with his life. So he says, they're not ready for it yet. I'm not there yet. Don't tell them about it. But there will be an unsealing that comes with the resurrection. You can see that at the end of verse 9. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. People will not be ready, Jesus says, to hear of the coming glory until the suffering is over and I've been raised. Now I want to conclude and tie some of this together with exactly how Peter remembered and exactly how Peter opened up or unsealed this vision. We can see that in our New Testament reading this morning, which was from 2 Peter 1. And 2 Peter 1 is a critical text because it's Peter's, at the very end of his life, it's his commentary, his reminiscing, if you will, on the transfiguration. Peter was at the event, and later on, he writes about it. And there in 2 Peter 1, referring to, to the transfiguration, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales and myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this. Peter speaks of this event in our text, the transfiguration, as Christ's power and coming. And the word for coming is the normal, ordinary word used of the second coming of the Lord. Peter clearly sees in this event not only a foretaste of the resurrection, but a foretaste of the coming of the Lord Jesus, a preview of the second advent. So finally, let me remind you of what I said at the beginning. Remember at the end of chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus says to his disciples, some of you, not all of you, but some of you are not going to taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That verse is fulfilled six days later in Peter, James, and John in our text. You'll often find people say with verses like that, well, the New Testament must be wrong or Jesus must have been mistaken because Jesus um, thought that some of his disciples would be alive when he returned in glory. The text is clearly fulfilled at the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw the Lord coming in his kingdom. And so, for us, in this text, we have not only a vision of that glory, but we have the surest confirmation that we are destined for the same fiery, translucent, you know, embodied glory. We don't just float off into the ether. We don't just become spirits. We long for and we are destined for these Tenements, right? these houses of clay 
to be transfigured into burning bodies of light. This is not a trivial tack-on footnote to the Christian faith. This is the Christian hope. And this text comes right before Lent, as I said, because it's Easter in advance. It's the glory of the kingdom in advance. It's as if Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us, you have to take the expectation and the promise of the coming glory of your own resurrection from the dead, your own embodied transfiguration. You have to take it and you have to wrench it forward and put it at the front of the Christian life. At the beginning, you have to insert it now. You cannot live the Christian life with some hope that is way out there someplace. You have to see the transfigured Jesus because the end has already broken into the beginning in Christ. And so that's why Jesus does this. And as such, this text has a rich, practical purpose. It is intended to encourage us, as it was the disciples, in the way of the cross. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, you're going to suffer. Life is hard. Being my disciple is hard. You're going to take up the cross. And in the end, you're going to die. So at the beginning of this process, I want you to understand that you are going to be a transfigured, translucent, burning body of light. So get ready. Steal yourself. This is your sure and certain destiny. And you need to be strengthened by it. So this, this scene reminds us that the discipline of the cross, the daily life of repentance, which we use the Lenten season to call ourselves to, it can't be shirked and it can't be avoided. Suffering, then glory. But you, you see the glory at the beginning. You taste the glory at the beginning. Lest you lose heart on the journey. The Christian life is hard. It's not enough to have some hope at the end. This is the pledge that you are going to be transfigured with Jesus. So we need to remember where we're going in the midst of the cross we're called to bear. We need to see Jesus, but the Jesus we need to see cannot be a figment of our imagination. It is this Jesus. It's the, it's the transfigured Christ who appears to John in Revelation 1. As he now is, so you shall be. And Peter goes on to say in, in 2 Peter in that same epistle that the transfiguration makes the whole prophetic word more certain. This event, this event confirms the whole messianic expectation of the Old Testament. And thus we're called here to listen to, to, to the prophetic word of God. Right, this is the one who speaks. This transfigured Christ, he's the one who presides. He has not given up his role, his living role, as the prophet who speaks to the people of God, whose word is enshrined in the Old and New Testaments. And so we're called to listen to him alone. That's the way of the cross. And that's the path to transfigured glory. Listen afresh to him. Listen only to him. The beloved and now transfigured son 
in whom God is well pleased. Amen.